Thanks, Brian. It's always a little nerve-wracking when uh, you get asked to share before a sermon. I'm scared someone's going to cover all my points before. Uh, and then it's like, well, I've got nothing else to say anymore. Uh, no, as Brian said, um, my name is Justin. I have the privilege of interning here this summer. Um, it's been a fantastic uh, few months, and I'm excited uh, to face August here as well. It's been wonderful here. Uh, this morning, we are continuing uh, our summer in the Psalms, as Brian said. We are in our third book. So let's dive right in. I remember when I was young, um, once or twice a year, my dad would take us um, I have an older brother and I have a younger sister. Uh, he would take us uh, to West Edmonton Mall. Um, I was born and raised in Edmonton, Alberta. And for those of you who know, Edmonton is mall metropolis. There is a lot of shopping there, low taxes, lots of people. Um, like most Edmontonians though, uh, our family avoided the mall like the plague because there's so many people there. It is, uh, I just Googled it, still the largest mall in North America. Um, but once or twice a year, my dad would take us there, and we would go to Galaxyland. It is the second largest um, indoor amusement park in the world. I just found that out this week. Um, and, you know, he would take us once or twice a year, and it would be a lot of fun, and we'd play a bunch of games and stuff like that. I remember this one time, um, I was probably seven years old around, maybe six or seven. Um, I was finally tall enough to get on one of these go-kart rides, um, and I was super excited, right? I'd never driven anything in my entire life. Um, but some, for some reason, as soon as you're tall enough, you get to drive this thing. I remember lining up with my brother, very excited. Um, my, my dad and sister were off uh, in the distance kind of watching us. And as a guy who worked there would open the gate, all the kids would kind of scramble out. Uh, we'd go pick our cart. I remember, you know, finding the one, strapping myself in and being so excited. And I turn over, there's this kid who's like maybe my age, um, Platinum blonde, just gives, just glaring me down, right? I'm just like, you know, this kid was out to win it. You could tell by how intense he looked at me. Um, so the race starts. I'm having the time of my life. I'm happy just to be there. For some reason, somehow, I'm at the top of the pack most of the time. And as the final lap comes around, I remember uh, there's this really sharp turn. I don't know if this ride is still there. It's been a long time. But there's this really sharp turn. I'm on the inside lane, and the kid who was beside me suddenly makes a very sudden move. I remember very clearly there were explicit rules. You do not hit anyone. It's not bumper carts, it's go-karts. The point is to race, not to hit each other. But he cuts me off really suddenly, rams into me, and I head straight into a wall, coming to a full stop. And I'm just in shock, right? This kid had just broken the rules, and as he... Uh, cut me off and ran me into the wall. I watched him as he sped away towards the finish line, and I looked back and passed by a whole bunch of cars. And that was my first go-kart experience. Um, I think I finished near last, if not last. I remember leaving the line afterwards as we're exiting the ride. I make eye contact with this kid because I'm furious, right? And he looks at me, and he smirks. He smiles. He knows what he did. Uh, I know what he did, and he knows I knew what he did. He had cheated to win. He had broken the rules, and he had beat me. And I was so 
angry. That's how, like, I still remember it to this day, and that's why I'm using it, because that's how angry I was. I don't know what God I believed in at six or seven, but I know that I was going to call upon that God to smite down this child who had just beaten me by cheating. Isn't it amazing, though, how even at such a young age, even at such a young age, we can have such a sense of right and wrong, of justice, of injustice, of you've broken the rules, that's not fair. This isn't right, even at such a young age. And it never leaves us. I think all throughout our lives, many, many, many people have a very strong sense of these are the rules. This is right and wrong. This is just. This is unjust. And that's what kind of bridges us to our poem today. You know, uh, Psalm 73, which we're on today, is a psalm credited to a man named Asaph. And it's, it's these feelings, these emotions of justice, of injustice, of being wrong, of, of judgment uh, towards the wicked and, and what happens when they flourish. That, those are the emotions that we're going through today uh, as we're in this psalm. It's a very raw psalm in terms of feeling. Um, so we're in Psalm 73 today. Um, if uh, you guys have your Bibles, I'll ask, them, ask you guys to still keep them closed for now. Um, if you remember last time, I uh, read the psalm. I presented the psalm to you guys first. It's not a gimmick. Uh, I think we are a reading and writing culture, and that's very important, and that's fantastic. But sometimes when we change the way we engage a text, like Brian says, every morning he likes to listen to the texts. So first I'm going to present this text to you. And then after, I'll ask uh, ask you guys to open your Bibles. Uh, So if you're comfortable, I'll ask you to close your eyes. Pay specific attention to the movement of the psalm, to what our psalmist has to say about what is right and wrong and the way the world works. So this is Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They've no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff, speak with malice, and with arrogance they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. So their people turn to them, drink up their waters in abundance, and say, How would God know? Does the Most High know anything? You know, this is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted. Every morning brings new punishment. And if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. And when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. 
When you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless, ignorant, a brute beast before you. Yet I am with you always. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? The earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, but as for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Yahweh my my refuge, and I will tell of all your deeds. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time together. We know there is power in gathering together in your name. And in the same way that this psalm taught countless generations before us today, Father, I pray that you would us, that you would teach us, and that we may be empowered to love you and to love our neighbor better in our everyday lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles now, I would ask you to open them to Psalm 73. Yahweh watches over the way of the righteous. The way of the wicked leads to destruction. That's the way our psalm entire book starts. That's the way we're starting today. Surely, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. I think that's really comforting. You know, it gives me an orientation. As I'm walking down this path, it gives me a true north to know that God guides those who seek him, those who walk in righteous paths. It's orienting. It gives us a compass, and I love it. You know, if this is just verse one in the entire psalm, awesome, wonderful. It's true. But what happens when scripture is wrong? What happens when what we are taught and what we read and the testimony of others does not line up with what we see in our lives today? What happens? You know, Walter Brueggemann describes uh, the state of oriented being, of knowing your true north as a state of being securely oriented, of equilibrium, consistent being well settled, knowing that life makes sense and God is well-placed in heaven. But what happens when we are divinely disoriented? Again, when what we see in scripture isn't lining up with how we're living our lives and what we're seeing in the world today. That is very, very disorienting. And it's very troubling. And that's what we're dealing with today. We have 27 other verses to go that kind of outline what happens. Our poet says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I think an important thing to note right away when we're reading the psalm is after that first verse, it becomes first person. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. This is witness. This is not abstract rumination. It's not theorizing. It's not some guy wondering, oh, what happens if it doesn't line up? It's a guy 
and his own experience living his life and saying, this does not add up. And he is very disoriented. He loses his true north. Why? How? Well, if you go on, we see that these wicked people, they're prospering. They're not like chaff. They're not blown away by the wind. These people, they're physically healthy. They're free from everyday people and their problems. Pride is their necklace. I love that imagery. You know, jewelry is worn to be uh, displayed and shown. Um, I go to Bible college. It seems like every other week there's someone else getting engaged. It's crazy. And they, they love to show off their ring. Guy or girl, they love to show it off. You know, they're stuffing it in your face. When you're in person, they love to show you off. And when you go home, you can't get away from it. It's on Instagram. It's on Facebook. That ring is everywhere. That's the imagery our our poet is saying. These, These evil people who are prospering, pride is their necklace. They're so open, right? And more than that, arrogant, uh, they're, they clothe themselves with violence. So this pride is not just existing on its own. It, it's tied to the rest of the outfit. And the rest of the outfit is violence. It's unrighteous gain through the harm of others. You know, they scoff, they speak with malice. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their mouths take possession of the earth. The literal Hebrew here is they lay claim to heaven. They, they set their mouths in heaven. Their tongues walk the earth. I love that imagery. That's fantastic. It's such a presumptuous speech, right? You know, with their, their, what they're saying, they lay claim to the realm of the gods. You know, ancient worldview, gods are up there, we're down here. These people are laying claim to the realm of the gods. It's so presumptuous. That's how boastful these people are. And when their tongues walk the earth, they lay claim to the realms of men as well. You know, there might be a sense of hypocrisy here too. That might be uh, something that our poet is talking about. And what happens? This is disorienting our poet. Uh, Brueggemann continues to write. I love Walter Brueggemann. That's a product of uh, CBC. Um, he says, the Psalms emerge from and reflect precisely such situations of chaos. The Psalter knows that life is dislocated. There need be no cover-up. The Psalter is a collection over a long period of time of the eloquent, passionate songs and prayers of people who are at the desperate edge of their lives. Our people are divinely disoriented. They've lost their true north. Why? Because they see that what they read in Scripture, what they're hearing in Scripture, and the lives they're living It doesn't add up. Something doesn't add up. And what happens? People turn to them. Our poet does not exist in a vacuum. You know, verse 10, therefore people turn to them, drink up their waters in abundance and say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? Our poet is not alone. Many people are like him. They turn to these people and they say, where's the underlying justice? This kid is just cut off another kid and he's winning. Where's the justice there? And it's very disorienting. It causes us to lose our true north. I am much the same way. I wish I could say otherwise. I really struggle, especially in this political climate today, in this social climate. It's really hard. Um, You know, you turn on the TV. There's another preacher asking for your money. 
um, preying on the, 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 the desperate, the hopeless, saying, if you give me your money, God will bless you. And with that money, they purchased their million-dollar jets. I really struggle with that. To turn on the news, another corrupt politician gaining from exploiting masses of people. Another politician fueling the rhetoric of hate towards the alien, the foreigner. And these things have consequences. It causes people, it arms people, and it empowers them to go out there and do unspeakable acts of violence towards the innocent. You know, when I see these things, I go, how could God know, you know? If there's a true and righteous God, if he's good, how could some guy going out on a trip to Walmart with his wife and his kids come home without a family? It's very difficult. How would God know? If God went up there, he would do something. It's a very disorienting experience. Maybe I'm just on Twitter too much. I don't know. I read a lot of this stuff on Twitter. Not to say that it's the ultimate source of news, but there is some stuff on there. And we hit this low point in verse 13, verse 14. Our poet has hit a low point. He says, surely, this surely counteracts the first one in verse one. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted. Every morning brings more suffering. You know, our, our poet Asaph, you know, First Chronicles describes him as a choir leader. He's a public figure, a religious leader in, in Israel. He's a Levite. That means he was probably part of a lot of uh, temple rituals of cleansing. He's probably washing himself to, to be in these places. So there's a, both a literal, physical washing of hands in innocence here and a metaphorical. You know, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But he's doing all these things. He's hit his low point. It's vanity. He's saying all day long, even worse than that, more than that, every morning brings new punishment. And I'm sure so many of us can relate. It's difficult to do the right thing. A lot of times it's even going to cost us. You know, integrity, when we're at work, when no one's looking. A lot of times trying to do the right thing actually puts you back a step. It'll actually cost you. It might cost your time, your money, your blood, sweat, and tears. Sometimes it all feels like vanity because the next guy, he's coming out on top. And he's kicking everyone beside him down. You know, there's a moment of self-awareness in verse uh, 16. Uh, No, sorry, 15. He says, if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. He's a public figure. He's very aware that he does a lot of religious rituals for Israel. He said, if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. There's a counter, another, another aspect of witnessing here. We see how the wicked are witnessing. And he's saying that if I do the same, I would have betrayed your children. It would be betrayal. If I had said, these things. And when he tried to understand all of this, it troubled him deeply. That is until we hit verse 17. 
something happens, something drastically changes. A breath of fresh air comes into the building. And oh my God, literally, oh my God. How wonderful. He says, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. For our poet, something happens. You know, he probably, as a Levite, again, you know, it, he probably had some, something, it had something to do with the temple. He probably uh, entered it at some capacity physically. We don't exactly know what happens in the sanctuary. It doesn't describe it. I kind of wish it did. I want to know, you know, for me today, how can I get there? What can I do? What are the steps? What did God say? What did he say? What happened here that changed everything? But we don't know. We don't find out. All we know is there is an encounter. And in an encounter with Yahweh, our poet is drastically, drastically changed. You know, if our poem ended today in uh, verse 16, I would still love it. I love depressing things. I love blues music and I don't know. I just love depressing things. But it doesn't end there, at least not today. Some poems end in the psalm quite depressing, but not today. He doesn't just sit in his pain and his grief and his sorrow. I often do, and this is something I fail often. I just sit there with my pain, and I wonder, and I despair. But our poet doesn't do that. He addresses God. He doesn't just take his pain and keep it there. He opens up. He writes a poem. He enters a sanctuary, and he addresses God. Walter Brueggemann says that the Psalms are disorientation addressed to God. And in that address, something happens to the disorientation. You know, he started in his original orientation. God blesses the righteous, right? Watches over their way. But he is divinely disoriented. He sees the way the world is. And rather than just closing his eyes, he turns to God and he addresses God. He says, this isn't right. How often do we do that? I don't. I read the news. I see all these difficult things and I get bitter and cynical. This is something I struggle with a lot. And what happens as a result of this encounter, he understands something new. There is revelation in this encounter. He says, then I understood their final destiny. Our poet realizes three things. Firstly, he says, he outlines in verse 18 to 20, he says, surely, our third surely, surely you place them on slippery ground. This counteracts and is foil is verse two. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. You know, God, you place them on slippery ground. I love the, the metaphor of slipping. If you guys have ever been on an icy sidewalk, I mean, we're all Canadians, so I think at some point we all have, or I guess most of us, I shouldn't say we're all Canadians. A lot of us are. It's a very sudden strange feeling to slip and to lose your balance to get robbed of your balance one second you're on your path and life is normal and the next second you're staring at the sky you know from one moment he was the one slipping from being disoriented to now saying god you placed the wicked on slippery ground surely they have built their house on sand surely these people that are oppressing people who are doing injustice they're the ones who will slip they're the ones who are on their path 
normally and who will suddenly be wiped out? How suddenly are they destroyed? They're like a dream. Do you know how hard it is to remember dreams? I'm sure we all try to remember dreams. It's, as soon as you wake up so often, they're gone. Just like that, these wicked people are here today and gone tomorrow. That's the first thing he notices. The second thing is he becomes more self-aware in verse 21 and 22. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant, a brute beast before you. Grief and bitterness have done a lot of work in my life to desensitize me to the world around me. And it's good to know that I'm not the only one. A lot of times, sadness and bitterness, difficult times, numb us to the world around us. You know, this self-awareness is, it doesn't come until after the encounter, until he's out of that place. And a lot of it is a question of what is the metric for flourishing? How do we measure whether or not God is watching over the way of the righteous or the way of the wicked? Well, if we look at our poem here today from verse 4, from verse 4 to verse 9, how many of those things are outward? How many of those things are physical? If we're using, if in our grief and in our bitterness, we are measuring flourishing, if we're measuring God watching over the way of the righteous through the physical, where are our hearts at? You know, for the ancient Near East, you know, flourishing blessing may have been tied to Oh, how much rain is there? How are your crops doing? How many cows do you have? How many children do you have? And if that's the way that we're measuring God uh, watching over the way of the righteous, of course we're going to be divinely disoriented. It's the same today. And that's the danger of the prosperity gospel. For those of you who don't know, a very brief prosperity gospel is a gospel tied to the belief that if you give money, that if you are faithful, that God will bless you with material possessions. That you will, it is God's will for you to be rich. Because that, and that's the danger of that. Because it's so close. It's so close to what is true. It's off by just a couple degrees. But because it's off by a couple degrees, for anyone who knows, if you're on a hike, if you're off by a few degrees, a few kilometers later, you are completely off your path. The prosperity gospel is so close to what we believe in. But yet it's just off enough. If every day we're using our measurements of God blessing us and our flourishing by how nice our car is, how nice our house is, man, of course we're going to look at the other guy and say, he's got a nicer house, he's got a nicer car. And in, our, in, the, in bitterness and grief that numbs us and it makes us look at the other peop- uh, our neighbor in envy and covet what they have. So what is our modern metric for flourishing that's what leads us to our third thing our poet realizes yet i am with you always in fact god never left him you guide me with your counsel afterward you take me into glory and in verse uh, 26 my favorite in the whole poem my flesh and my heart may fail the physical may die who i am may struggle and may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
His grace is enough. Surely the wicked have built their house on sand. But the one who is near God, the one whose treasure is in heaven, whose treasure is God, surely they're the ones building their houses on rock, on a solid foundation. And it's when we have these breakthrough encounters, when we are disoriented, that we become reoriented in our encounter, that we see things anew. Brueggemann describes this new orientation as quite unlike the old status quo. It's rather all things new, always a surprise, a gift of graciousness, and always an experience which evokes gratitude. It's not back to normal. It's rather a new normal, from orientation to disorientation to reorientation. It's a new normal. You're not just back on the path. You're back on the path with renewed vigor, with renewed understanding, strengthened. You know, as New Testament Christians um, today, you know, we don't have a physical temple to encounter God. Maybe, you know, church buildings have been as close as we have gotten. But instead, we have something different. We are on this side of the resurrection. And what do we find out? We find out that God's continued incarnation, his continued presence, his continued sanctuary is in the hearts of his believers in his church. I think it's incredible that God decides to use such broken people because every single one of us is broken and part of systems that are broken. And he uses us to form new communities. So for us today, you know, if we are embittered, if we are in grief, if we don't understand the world, if we are constantly saying, this isn't fair, and we need that sanctuary, I think it's hard to overlook the importance of going to church. I'm not talking about just worship services. Certainly these are important. And gathered worship changes us, certainly. But I'm talking about really being a part of a community of believers. Laughing with them, crying with them, eating with them. Hopefully lots of eating. To be part of a community of believers Do we encounter God in our church community? I also don't want to forget the importance of encountering God in the day-to-day. You know, I go to Bible college and and I'm surrounded by Christians, but I think it's amazing. Uh, Not all of us go to church, and some of us might go to church maybe once or twice a year. And they talk about the importance. A lot of these for them, certainly I want them to, to go to church, but... There's also a sense of where are they in their walk. But you always hear them talk about the importance of encountering God in the day-to-day as well, in nature, in, in other communities. You know, for us, what does that look like? What does it mean to encounter God, to be in the sanctuary of God in our day-to-day lives? Do you see God at work around you? Sometimes it's very difficult in our offices, in our schools. How are we looking to see how God is already at work? And how are we coming alongside him in that work and finding presence and finding sanctuary there and being renewed and reoriented to find our true north? That's a challenge. That's difficult. I go to Bible college and I don't see that every day. Trust me. Sometimes the deeper you're in it, the harder it is to see it. 
But I need to. I need to look for God every day and how he is at work and in looking to encounter him. You know, to finish off, our poet reaffirms uh, that ongoing testimony of others, that God watches the way of the righteous and that the wicked will fall away. He says, but as for me, it is good to me near God. I have made the sovereign Yahweh my refuge. He calls the Lord by name. And where does that leave him? He says, I will tell of all your deeds. We have a tense change. Much of the poem is done in past tense. So you know this is reflection afterward. But here he says, I will tell of all your deeds. In gratitude, in expressing gratitude, he begs an audience. He witnesses. He says, look at me, look at my life. Look how I was disoriented. Look how I've encountered God and been reoriented. And he says, I will tell of all your deeds. How powerful is that? If every day in our lives we look to encounter God and we look to tell people around us of the good news, not just intellectual assent of this is what we believe, but really how often do we believe we have good news of freedom for the prisoner, the blind, seeing the lame walking. How often do we go around carrying good news? A few hundred years after uh, this poem was compiled to be part of this book of Psalms, uh, there was a man who, uh, at some point in his life, sat on a, a mountain top or maybe a hill or a valley somewhere. And he said a bunch of things. Among them, he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. We see that echoed here. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. I would challenge you today to go out into your weeks and to see how God is at work. The pure in heart will see God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for our time together. We thank you for your word, which has power. It's a testimony of your community, your covenant community for a long, long time. And while sometimes we may believe these texts are locked in ancient, out-of-date customs and people, Father, we see so much shared humanity today in the art that we do, in the poems that we write, in the songs that we sing, and the prayers that we pray. So in that shared humanity, in our shared worship of you, may we come to love you better and to love those around us better. And when we can't, when it's difficult, when we look at the world and we see the wicked prospering, Father, May we turn to you. May we address it to you. And a result of that, may we witness to other people how great this news it is that we have. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.